Let me invite you to open up your Bible to John 18, or if you don't have your Bible, take the Pew Bible and open it up to the 18th chapter of John, and we are going to read together uh, the first six verses, and we're going to read some of the rest of that chapter as well as the next, um, but we're going to start with these verses. This is our reading for this Palm Sunday as we move from Palm to Passion and tell the story of the last week of Jesus' life. And so John chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, friends, as a church, we've been reading together through the Gospel of John during this season of Lent. If you haven't already downloaded the Timberlake app, let me invite you to do that. You can go to your app store on your phone, search Timberlake UMC, and get the app. And you can get the devotions there and have your reading right there handy on your phone. If you're not a phone person, if you'd rather have it in writing on, on paper copy, you can get that at the Welcome Center out here at the table in the hallway. And let me invite you to read along with us. Even if you have not read any of the Gospel of John during Lent, uh, that's okay. Maybe you're new or maybe you said, well, I meant to, I just I didn't get there yet. Let me encourage you, now is a great time to dig into it because we are reading this week some of the most essential part of the story, which is John 18 and 19. And so I hope that you will read along with us as, as we go through this time together. So today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we remember, celebrate that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the back of the donkey. And this is one of those stories, I think, we read it and we're like, hmm, what is going on here? What is this about? There's plenty of Bible stories we read and then we say, yep, that makes sense. I've done that before. I've been there. But we read this story and we say, yeah, I, I don't, can't say I've ever seen a Jewish rabbi you know, riding down a dirt road on the back of a donkey and people waving palm branches. That's just not something that usually happens in, in my world. So what's going on? Well, what's going on, friends, is this. They were having a parade. You know about parades. They look a little different these days than they did back then, but they were having a parade because Jesus was their coming king. He was coming, they thought, to take on the throne of Rome and to be the new emperor, to be the new king, and so they were excited, and they were uh, hailing him as king, and they laid down their coats on the ground in, in front of him out of reverence and, and uh, respect. They waved palm branches, and they shouted, Hosanna, which means what? Save us, because they believed and understood he was the one who could save them. Jesus was the new king. Now, it turns out that he didn't really become the kind of king that they were hoping that he might be. And, and instead of being a conquering warrior, a, a fierce new king, he was a humble king. And he comes riding on, on a donkey, on this working man's animal. And instead of taking the throne 
the, the seat of the emperor in Rome, he allows himself to be arrested and put on trial. And instead of coming by force, he comes with love. And something happened that week because the same crowds who were waving their palm branches and shouting Hosanna on Sunday, on Friday, they were shouting, crucify him. So let's look at the story and how how did that come to be. We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. The story says, after Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So here's the story. It's Thursday night. It's maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night. We're not sure exactly. But we know that Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet and he taught them about his love for them. And then as they finished dinner, they got up from the table and they left the upper room. They went down Mount Zion and across the Kidron Valley. They came to the base of the Mount of Olives and they came to a garden. Now, Matthew and Mark and Luke take pains to point out that it's called Gethsemane. John doesn't give us the name of the garden, but he says they came to a garden. So I want you to take a moment to to meditate and dwell on that detail for just a second. Think about what you know about the place of gardens in the scriptural witness. Think about what you know about the place of the garden in the story of salvation history. So creation happens, and God takes a man and a woman, and he puts them in a garden, right? The Garden of Eden. That's the beginning in Genesis. Go all the way to the end at Revelation. God is busy making a new heaven and a new earth, and it is depicted as a garden with a river flowing through it and lots of green things growing and the, the lion laying down with the lamb, and, and paradise is restored, put back together in the garden. So we have our beginning in a garden. We have our ending in a garden. And right here in this crucial point in the middle where, where salvation history turns with the cross of Jesus, the story unfolds in a garden. Verse 3, let's keep going, verse 3. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas betrayed Jesus, and he's bringing this uh, people to arrest him. Notice the word John uses to describe the group of soldiers, detachment. That is an official term. In some versions of the Bible, they call it a cohort So Bible scholars tell us that a cohort or a detachment of soldiers was anywhere between 300 and 600 soldiers. Okay, so I want you to imagine for a second, 600 soldiers plus police from the chief priests, all carrying torches and carrying weapons, and they've come to arrest Jesus. Hundreds of them come to arrest just just one man. Ah, but he's not just a man. Is he? And that's John's point that this is bigger than just one man. Jesus is not only human, he's also divine. And so it takes a small army, perhaps. And yet Jesus is pretty clear he's not afraid. <laughs> he's not afraid of this army who has come to arrest him. He's the God of angel armies. And so he's not afraid. It's interesting when you look at John compared to the other three Gospels. Matthew and Mark and Luke really emphasize the humanity of Jesus. They, they want us to understand that he has suffered like we have suffered. And so they talk about how Jesus hesitated before going to the cross. They talk about his despair. They talk about how his sweat was like drops of blood. 
they talk about Jesus' prayer to the Father, how Jesus prayed, Father, may this cup pass from me. He was asking, is there any other way that this salvation for the world could be accomplished? And he finally said, not my will, but yours. But in the meantime, there's this moment of questioning. There's this moment of wondering. And yet, not, not in John. In John, Jesus is a king who is firmly in control of his own destiny. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? Friends, I want you to notice, if an army comes with torches and weapons to arrest me, now I'm, I'm running, right? I'm running the other way in fear. But not Jesus. Jesus comes forward. He steps toward them. And he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replied, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. So the New Revised Standard Version renders Jesus' words as, I am he. But more accurately, it should simply just say, I am. In the Greek, it's ego eimi, which is I am. And if you're a student of the Old Testament, you will recognize those words as the same words that God said from the burning bush to Moses. When Moses said, okay, Lord, who should I tell the Pharaoh is sending me to come and release your people, God said, tell them I am. Tell them I am sent you. And so now Jesus is revealing himself as Jehovah. He is God in the flesh. He is the great I am. And no wonder these soldiers, these big, strong, highly trained military men fall back because they are in the presence of Almighty God. Peter. Peter wants to defend Jesus. And so he pulls out his sword, and the story says he cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's slave. The slave was named Malchus. And so Jesus, in his usual style, uh, not with violence but with peacemaking and healing, Jesus takes the ear and puts it back on the man's head and heals him on the spot. And then he corrects Peter in verse 11. Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Friends, remember, in the other Gospels, Jesus is praying, Father, may this cup pass from me. In John, John's reminding us that, yes, Jesus is human, but he is also very much divine. And so he is embracing his mission. He is taking it on. And he says, am I not to drink the cup? As if he's saying, yes, of course, this is what I will do. Not because I want to suffer, but because the people need me to do this for them. He is determined to face the suffering that the Father has put in front of him. And John wants us to see that Jesus is all-powerful, that Jesus is mighty and strong, that he has courage in the face of danger, that he has authority over all things, that he has authority over all people. He is the king who now presents himself to be arrested. And in the mystery of God that is known only to God, these things are being revealed now little by little. This is God's self-revelation as God in the flesh, Jesus the King for the Jews and for all people. So Jesus was arrested and he was put on trial and they, they brought him to Annas, who is formerly the high priest, and then they brought him before Caiaphas, who is the current high priest, 
And the, the high priests, the Pharisees, they agree that Jesus has to die. They say that Jesus has to die, and yet they don't really want blood on their hands. And so they take him to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Pilate's job was to maintain order in that region. His job was to maintain the peace of Rome, the so-called Pax Romana, this kind of false peace that was enforced by government and military rule. And so Pilate's job is to exert the power of Rome on this region called Judea and on the people who live there. So the charge that the high priests made against Jesus was insurrection. They wanted him to be charged with treason. They said that, look, by claiming to be king of the Jews, Jesus is rebelling against Caesar and against the authority of Rome. Therefore, he's to be put on trial and to be executed. Now, the truth is, the real reason that the Jewish leaders did not like what Jesus was doing was not because they were concerned about treason. The real reason they were upset is because he offended them. The real reason they were upset is because he insulted them, because he called their authority into question. He, he dared to suggest that all the while claiming to speak for God, they may have missed the God thing altogether. And so this is their way of getting back at Jesus, and they brought him to Pilate. So we're going to continue with verse 33 in chapter 18. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Three things I want you to notice here in this part of the story. First, this is a political conversation. Some of us like to imagine that the ministry of Jesus was purely spiritual, and, and that he just stayed away from politics, you know, because politics is messy and dirty and ugly. But this is a decidedly political conversation. You see, friends, politics is not only a question of how we organize ourselves as human beings in communities, in local and state and national levels. It's also a question of allegiances. And so this is a question of allegiances that has come up. And the question is, will the people be loyal to the Roman Empire or will they be loyal to the kingdom of God? Now, this hits home for you and me, I think, because we live in a wonderful country, right? We love our country, we are proud of it, and we live in the most prosperous time of any nation ever on the face of the earth, and we see our flag, and we salute it, and we, our children say the Pledge of Allegiance, and we are proud to be Americans. But ultimately, there will come a time, maybe sooner, maybe later, when you and I have to decide, are we Americans first? Or are we disciples of Jesus first? Where is our allegiance? Where is our allegiance? The second thing I want you to notice is Pilate's decision and his decision-making process. After he put Jesus on trial, he told the Jewish authorities, he said, look, I find no case against him. So even Pilate understood that Jesus was innocent 
of the things that he was being charged with. He was no insurrectionist. He was not treasonous. He wasn't going to overthrow the government by force. Pilate got that. But he was being pressured by the religious leaders. They said, if you release Jesus, you are no friend of the emperor. In other words, look, if you do this, we're going to go tell the emperor, and you're going to be in big trouble, dude. And Pilate understood that. He knew that if he didn't please his superiors, then he would uh, have problems from those who were higher up. And so here he is. He's caught between his sense of justice on the one hand and this kind of political peer pressure from other religious leaders on the other hand. He wanted to do the right thing, but, but he didn't do the right thing because he was afraid of what it would do to him, to his career, to his status. You know, it's interesting when you look at this story of Jesus and Pilate, you begin to see that it actually it wasn't Jesus who was on trial at all. It was Pilate. And the question was, will Pilate do the right thing? You know, here's a test before him, and unfortunately he failed the test. Rather than doing what was right, he did what was easier. And so then the question comes to us, friends. When we are faced with the test, what will we choose? Will, will we choose what is right or will we choose what is easy? Will we choose to obey Jesus and go the distance with him even when it's hard? Or will we do what's comfortable and, and to save our own selves? The third thing I want you to notice is who is responsible? Who's responsible for what's happening? The Jews wanted Pilate to be responsible. They, they blamed Jesus for bringing this on himself. When you read the Gospel of John, it seems pretty clear. John wants to point to the Jewish authorities as the people who are responsible. But I'm here to tell you this this morning, friends. We're all responsible. We are all responsible. The reason Jesus had to die was because of my sin and because of your sin. And so it is tempting to sit back and point the finger at Pilate, the bad guy, or at these Jewish authorities and say how terrible they were. But a better, more fruitful act would be for you and I to look in the mirror and say, God, will you please forgive me and my part of the reason that Jesus had to die? Because I know that I have sinned and I have not measured up to your best for me. Let's move to the story of the crucifixion. This is in chapter 19. We're going to read starting with verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. Pilate said to the Jews, here is your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So one more time, Pilate tries to get out from under the weight of responsibility for what is happening. And he says to the people, do you really want me to crucify your king? And they respond, we have no king but the emperor. So they went to the place of the skull called Golgotha, and Jesus carried his cross. He picked up the instrument of his own death. He embraces it. He takes it on himself. You see, John wants us to notice that this is not something that is being done to Jesus as much as it is Jesus is willingly embracing this for himself. It's not so much that the cross is thrust on him as he picks it up. He willingly takes it on. Not because he needs it, but because we need it. And this is why he's come. This is the fulfillment of his mission. And so there they crucified him with two others, one on, on either side of him and Jesus in between. And they hung a sign on his cross. The inscription said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was typical in that day for a person being crucified to have his crimes written out on a sign and then posted there at the site of the crucifixion. I want you to notice in the story it says that the sign on Jesus' cross was written in three languages, in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. So what's the significance of that? Well, we know that the Jewish people spoke Hebrew, and so that would have been understandable. But why these other languages? Well, Latin and Greek uh, covered basically everybody else. Everybody else in, in the Roman Empire spoke, if not Hebrew, then they spoke Latin or Greek. And so one more time, John is pointing to the reality of Jesus' authority over all creation. He's king of the Jews, yes, but he's also king of every person in every land, in every language. He is king of kings, and he is lord of lords, the king of all creation. And we come to the climax of the story Jesus being revealed to the world as the king. The sign over his head proclaims it. The crown of thorns on his brow reveals it. He now takes his throne, and his throne is a cross. He's laying down his life for his subjects. He's, he's the creator of the universe, willing to die for his creation. God the Father sent God the Son to die for you and for me. Friends, I want you to take a moment this morning and just let that sink in. I think some of you have heard that news hundreds of times. Maybe you've never heard it before. But I want us to appreciate the weight of what God has done for us. The power of this gift that God the Father sent God the Son to die for us. You know, we started this season with Ash Wednesday. It was almost six weeks ago now, and Ash Wednesday is that day at the beginning of Lent when we mark one another with a cross and ashes on our, on our foreheads. And so you came and we came and we gathered in this room, and Pastor Matt and I stood right here at the front, and you came so very wonderfully and willingly right down the center aisle and you stood in front of us and you sort of leaned in and you allowed us to mark you with the cross. And we said to you, remember you are dust 
and to dust you shall return. I, I want you to understand, friends, how humbling it is to serve in that priestly role and to remind God's people, to remind you of your sinfulness, to remind you of your mortality, but also then to pronounce God's forgiveness for you. It's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible responsibility that God has given us for one another. And so there we are on Ash Wednesday, standing right down here in front, and, and you're coming in the line, and I'm putting ashes on your forehead. And, and there's, uh, there's kind of a rhythm to the way things happen, because you step forward, and then I dip my thumb in the ashes, and then I mark the cross, and then I say the words. You step forward, I dip my thumb, I mark the cross, I say the words. It's kind of happening over and over. So I'm trying to be very intentional. Right? This, is not, this is not mechanistic. This needs to be interpersonal. This needs to be intentional. And so as each person comes, I'm saying, God, help me see this person as one of your children who you love. And I'm looking you in the eye, and I want to have a moment of encounter with each of you. And I'm kind of in this rhythm. And then all of a sudden, as I'm standing there, before I can realize what's happening, I look in front of me, and standing in front of me is my son. My son, Luke, eight years old, standing there looking up at me. And I put my thumb in the ashes, and I marked his forehead with a cross, but I, I couldn't say anything. I knew the words I was supposed to say. I didn't forget, but, but I could not bring myself to say out loud that my son one day was going to die. And I sensed the profound love of God for me and for him in that moment and thought about what God has done for us. And then I realized I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. God the Father gave his only son to die. And if I was asked to give my only son, even for the whole salvation of the whole world, I couldn't do it. I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm not that generous. In that moment, I just wanted to hold my son and hug him and love him and, and say, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. I wanted to protect him, to keep him from everything bad. And you know, given the same opportunity, God the Father offered God the Son to die so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 